Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Today, our guest is Dr. Gordon C. Nagayama Hall, who is a professor of psychology in the clinical psychology program at the University of Oregon. Dr. Hall received his PhD in clinical psychology from Fuller Theological Seminary. His blog for psychology today is Life in the Intersection, a Multicultural Psychology Approach. And his research his research interests are in culture and mental health with a particular interest in Asian Americans. Dr. Gordon Hall, thanks for doing this. What's the crack? How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you for inviting me. Uh, I've uh, been coping with this uh, pandemic as we all are, but uh, it's nice to be interviewed and uh, appreciate your uh, uh, interest in my work. No, yeah, we're, we're very much looking forward to it. Um, the, I guess the first question we usually ask, and I want to ask you, is how how has your interest in this area evolved, or just can you give us a bit of a background to your, to yourself? Yes, uh, I grew up in Seattle, Washington, and my grandparents on my mother's side were from Japan, and okay. because my mother and her family were from Japan during World War II, uh, they were put into concentration camps in Posen, in Arizona. So they lived in California and they were moved to Arizona. And so that violation of civil rights was something that shaped my identity. My mother told mm -hmm. me about that situation and I was aware of being an Asian American. And this was something that interested me and was something that I wanted to study. I took a psychology class in high school. And although it wasn't focused on culture or social justice, it did seem to be a way where I could study my interest in human behavior. And then I went to the University of Washington as an undergraduate and then to Fuller Theological Seminary, as you mentioned. And there I began to focus on my interest in culture and mental health. And uh, my career has been circuitous. I began studying sexually aggressive behavior because there were opportunities in that area. Then I began to integrate my interests in culture with sexual aggression, looking at risk protective factors uh, associated with sexual aggression. And then in the last 15 or so years, I focused exclusively on culture and mental health, particularly cultural ad adaptations of psychotherapy. Perfect, perfect. Um, Dr. Gordon, I just want to, I mean, I guess start as we mean to go on. I've got a fairly um, big question here. Um, basically, the more more and more I'm becoming like fascinated with the idea of, of self and identity. And we've had a few podcasts that have, have kind of touched on those themes. Um, and I've long since been an admirer of Japanese history, language and culture, uh, ever since I saw The Last Samurai when I was young. So maybe I'm guilty of romanticizing anything that's even slightly linked with Japan. Um, but that being said, I've recently read the book of How the World Thinks by Julian Bugini, which is a book that neatly compares and dissects the world's philosophies. Um, and in it, there's a chapter um, called The Relational Self, and it goes on to explain that in Japan, there is a strong pro-social culture and Westerners often confuse, uh, that Westerners often confuse as conformist. Uh, one of the examples given is of the image of Japanese men and women boarding a train. And he goes on to state that the reason that they board a train in such an orderly fashion is to um, is because it's in the interest of everybody else, not because they're trying to fit in. And then he goes on to state and quote that the nature of any, the nature of any individual is determined by how that individual stands in relation to others. Take away those relations and you're not left with a self stripped down to its essence, but a self stripped of its essence. Uh, this seems to be in stark contrast with the typical Western individualistic kind of reductionistic view of the self um, and anything else for that matter, I guess. Uh, <laughs> another clear example of this sense of self in relation to others is in the Japanese language, which I'm love um, whereby the pronoun such as I is simply dropped as it's of no great importance and the word of hu for human is um, ninjian if I pronounce that correctly I'm not sure which consists of nin meaning human and yen meaning space or between a kind of again illustrating that sense of relation and self so I guess my question is do you think this philosophical viewpoint is helpful when seeking to solve problems related to mental health and are there any negative aspects to it that my affection for Japan has kind of concealed from me? 
Sure. So thank you for that question. Mental health in the West tends to be conceptualized as residing within the individual. Mm. And uh, treatment focuses on the individual, whether it be medication or psychotherapy. And interpersonal relationships and the ability to fit into a group are de-emphasized or even overlooked. An example of how this interconnectedness can benefit everyone is some work by Brenda Campos in California on familism. Familism is a sense of connection to one's family and putting the priorities of one's family over one's own priorities. And she's found that for various ethnic groups, for Asian Americans, for African Americans, for Latinx Americans, and even for white Americans, a connection to one's family is associated with better mental health. And this is something that's typically not emphasized. So some would say for college students who Brenda Campos studied, for college students to be overly connected to their family or dependent on their family is not a good thing. But what she found is that even for young adult college students, that connections to family facilitated mental health, uh, reduced depression, and uh, is a good thing. So Mm -hmm. I think uh, the West has a rather narrow definition and focus on the individual as the source of mental illness and mental health yeah i mean i'm glad you touched on that because you know i think westerners are often perplexed by the deep connection between the individual and the group that's kind of present all over east asia uh and there was like a really striking example that i I read where um a south korean ferry that capsized killing unfortunately killing 304 passengers passengers including students who were on a school trip and the school's vice principal who organized that trip actually survived um unfortunately took his own life later on and left a note in which he said i take full responsibility Um, and then a newspaper commentator actually went on to say our nation has run headlong toward the goal of becoming wealthy but we turned a blind eye to the goal of becoming a civilized and safe society showing how he believes society had to shoulder the blame for this tragedy not a single man however odd uh, this may seem to a westerner it would appear that we can kind of appreciate the sentiment but in a slightly distorted way because i guess we feel immense pride um in the success of our family members often sharing the glory but we very rarely take any responsibility for their failures do you believe that when a family member of ours is suffering with mental health that we should take some responsibility uh, and not see it as a personal affliction and therefore also seek to rehabilitate with that person suffering Yes, there, there is a context for any kind of psychological problem, and the family has some responsibility. In, in the United States, we tend to be very individualistic, and yeah. people don't want to be blamed for their family members' problems. But there is a context in which mental health problems occur. And also, families can be mobilized to help a person heal, Mm-hmm. So the the family context is very important, and there is some shared responsibility, but uh, that's not an emphasis in the United States. In a positive sense, a person can be free from any burdens of being connected one's family, but in a negative sense, uh, the family can be a source of support and healing, and if a person is disconnected from their family, they lose those potential benefits Mm. and and when you you know talking about the kind of the positives and the negatives in in some of your work in fact in one of your papers i'm just going to title it in case anyone wants to go to read it called um coping as a mediator between losing face and depressive and social anxiety symptoms among asian americans Uh, it stated that the loss of face describes the failure of an individual to meet obligations placed upon him or her by members of um, his or her um, in-group 
losing face implies that one has shamed members of um, his or her family through one's actions. Face concerns differ from Western concepts um, of shame and embarrassment because it extends beyond the individual and affects members of one's in-group, which ties into the kind of previous questions, I guess. Um, You talk about maintaining the loss of face's protective mechanisms while mitigating its negative psychological effects. Could you kind of talk more about that? What what do you mean by the positives and the negatives? And, And what is there that maybe someone who isn't, Asian or come from any Asian descent, what could we learn from that loss of face? Yeah, so loss of face is multidimensional. With respect mm-hmm. to depression, it tend to, tends to suppress emotional expression and prevent help-seeking. On the other hand, if a person sees help-seeking as a way of saving face for themselves and their family, face concerns could motivate help-seeking. The, the weight of the evidence, however, suggests that face concerns interfere with disclosure problems and help seeking. However, face concerns are also associated with impulse control, which can prevent aggressive behavior, which I found in my research on sexual aggression. So lots of face in the West, it's not something that drives behavior because there is less connection to others and one's own behavior doesn't necessarily have implication for one's family or one's group. But this concern about face uh, could be could be conceptualized in the West as something that uh, uh, so an attempt to save face could help not only oneself but others in one's group, one's family, one's work group uh, and, and so forth. But it, it's it's a foreign concept for the most part for people in the West. Do you think that we can, that this sense of loss of face, does that um, l- kind of lose its effect or lose its potency, I guess, as the generations go on? Or is it something that keeps its potency regardless of whether you're a second generation Asian American or a fifth generation Asian American? There's evidence that loss of face and other cultural patterns persist through four generations of the United States. Asian American identity, including loss of face, persists in the United States because in part it's distinctive from mainstream individualistic values and also because Asian Americans are often treated as perpetual foreigners. In other words, they aren't allowed to assimilate even if they wish to. So these patterns Mm. persist at least through four generations in the United States. And and that's a really interesting point about the assimilation. Um, Do you think that is because because I find it funny, um, almost paradoxical, when you think that, I mean, almost unless you're a Native American, anyone in America comes from some sort of immigration background, right? But yet, Irish Americans, Italian Americans are seen as much more quote unquote American. Do you think that that's because purely because of how they're seen? I mean, physically speaking, I mean, maybe their, their, their features are less recognizable. Do you think that makes it easier for maybe an Italian uh, American to assimilate the American culture easier than maybe an Asian American? I'm just trying to figure out what the difference is. Physical features are part of it, but assimilation to a foreign country's philosophy or culture depends on the distance of one's culture of origin from the country's philosophy or culture. Right, that's psychic distance. In the U.S., white European Amer- immigrants often have an easier time assimilating than East Asian immigrants. When there's distance between a culture of origin and the foreign culture, assimilation may be difficult, even across generations. Distinctive cultural traditions, such as emphasis on the group more than the self, as we've been discussing, are often maintained mm-hmm. Sometimes a person isn't allowed to immigrate, assimilate by those in the foreign culture. Uh, for example, most Asian Americans are, are immigrants, and those Asian Americans who are born in the U.S. and whose parents or grandparents were immigrants continue to be perceived as immigrants rather than as part of the mainstream. Right. Okay. And do you believe, I mean, I'm interested, you know, we're both multicultural um, and I've always struggled with the sense of identity because in England, I was always seen as the Italian guy. And then when I'd go over to Italy to see my my cousins, uh, I would always be introduced as the English cousin. So I was neither 
English nor Italian. I was never had both feet in any camp. Do, have you ever struggled with that being Asian American yourself? And do you have you found that in your research? Yes, this issue of neither here nor there is common for people with multicultural identities. My maternal grandparents immigrated from Japan to California, as I mentioned. And when I visited Japan, I felt very American. Yet in the United States, I feel that my Japanese cultural background is distinctive. So I'm an Asian American rather than only an American. My colleague, Teresa Laframboise at Stanford University has proposed that being able to alternate between two cultures rather than choose one over the other is the most adaptive form of acculturation. Right. And, and and do you think what do you think um, for someone who is multicultural, um, what do you think is most influential in the upbringing? Would you say it's the country's the country's um, culture or the culture that they have within the house? I mean, you know, my example would be I was brought up and lived my whole life in England. Yeah, I felt very Italian because within the household, um, you know, we lived a very Italian lifestyle. The food we ate, the beliefs that we had, un- you know, within the, my four walls was very Italian. But obviously, once I stepped outside that front door. I was obviously confronted with England and, and, and English culture. Uh, is there any kind of research that would show which is more um, influential? For children earlier in development, the family is more influential. And then during adolescence, peers become more influential. And then as adults, a person can choose their environment more. So that choice right. of environment uh, becomes influential and is based on family and peer influences. So at different stages of development, there are different influences. So if one's peers are English, in your case, mm-hmm. you'll have more pressure to acculturate than if your peers were Italians and shared the traditions of your family. So the the influence of family depends on one stage of, of development. Family influences tend to recede as one reaches adolescence and adulthoods, although they can persist depending on how one maintains peer relationships with those from one's culture of origin. Uh, Thanks for that, Gordon. I, I did want to ask about the impact on the succession of generations on one's uh, identity uh, when i mean when i say this i mean um do you believe that asian identity will remain with your children or grandchildren as long as japanese culturisms are still present within the family i only ask well i ask partly because many irish people joke about irish americans identifying as irish even if they it was their great great grandparent that was actually from ireland and i was wondering is there a similar similar level of judgmentalism in Japan towards second and third generation Asian Americans, and what effect, if any, have you seen? What what effect can this have? So in Japan, Asian Americans are seen as uh, not authentically Japanese. Uh, I'm half Japanese, uh, and when I've gone to Japan, sometimes people wonder why I can't speak Japanese and treat me as if I've lost my culture. Also, during the period in which my grandparents came to the United States, the people from Japan who came to the United States were those who were the second child or third child or or people who weren't able to afford to stay in Japan. So I think there is some stigma around being an Asian American in Japan. In terms of in the United States, whether the identity persists. So my children went to a Japanese language immersion school and learned Japanese and uh, but they're very acculturated. And perhaps the most acculturated is my oldest daughter who married uh, a white American, but uh, she named her daughter, my granddaughter, Emiko, which is a, Emiko Takara, which is a Japanese name. And her name, full name is Emiko Takara Nagayama Hall. So three of her names are Japanese. And there is some sense of 
Japanese identity, even in this fourth generation child. So I think there is effort to maintain these distinct traditions because they are distinct and they can be seen as helpful or facilitating one's connection to others. But as I said, there's also with with some groups who are who look different, they're not entirely accepted as Americans or, or part of the mainstream. Uh, do you think as a society we need to maybe ease these immediate reactions. You know, if somebody sees somebody who may not look whatever authentically American is or authentically Irish is, that we should still give them their space to um, explain their identity. You know, I, personally, I feel like we are very judgmental and to say, oh, they're not, they're not Italian because of this or they're not Irish because of this, it, when really identity is a very personal thing. Do you think, or let me ask, have you seen an improvement in, in this maybe uh, awareness or openness for our, our reluctance to judge over the last few decades? I would like to say yes, but I'm talking to you during the coronavirus pandemic, and there have been a number of anti-Asian discrimination incidents, even in my own town. Um, where Asian Americans have been shunned at grocery stores, for example, or even yelled at and physically attacked. And there has been an uptick in these incidents in the last couple of months since the coronavirus has become evident. So Mm. I would like to say that there's been an improvement, but I think some of these issues are lying just beneath the surface yeah um gordon like you said that those 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 kind of problems are lying dormant and kind of almost waiting to spring up when given the opportunity could you talk about we spoke about in in, you know in in conversation before the podcast about why um for example asians are so readily readily accept um, wearing masks and have done actually before the coronavirus outbreak whereas most westerners this isn't actually just the u.s because in england and in the uk it's very similar um they feel as if it's almost an attack on their their individuality could you kind of expand on that point because when you mentioned it in, in, in talking it it really kind of opened my eyes Yes, face masks are commonly worn in japan and other east asian countries to protect others from one's own germs In the United States and apparently in other Western countries, the primary purpose of face masks is to protect oneself from the germs of others. Last year, I was on a plane flight in the U.S. and I heard someone coughing two rows behind me. When the flight was over, I looked back and saw that the coughing person was not wearing a mask, but a person next to him was wearing a mask. Some mm. Americans don't want to wear masks because they feel it violates their individual rights. Yeah, and, and then you linked it so beautifully, um, not to make this an anti-gun or pro-gun debate, but but that's the reason why, you know, for example, you were saying how Japan has that strict gun culture maybe and doesn't have the mass shootings, whereas in the US it kind of, it does, no? That's correct. J- Japan has strict gun control laws and no mass shootings and the good of the country precludes individual rights to own weapons. In contrast, the United States tolerates mass shootings, including deaths of children in exchange for individual gun rights. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, when, when you put it like that, it just kind of the penny dropped, and I was like, oh, that has hit the nail on the head. Um, but I, I wanted to come back slightly just, just to the assimilation that we were talking about beforehand. I mean, in your paper um, on becoming multicultural in a monocultural research world, a conceptual approach to studying ethnocultural diversity, uh, you state that in assimilationist societies, minority groups and immigrant groups are supposed to abandon their cultural norms and adapt to the host country norms. Um, However, in more multicultural societies, groups are encouraged to maintain their cultural norms. In general, uh, most majority groups, i.e. European Americans in the United States, tend to favor assimilation strategies, whereas many minority groups are said to favor multicultural approaches. Uh, With that being said, do you believe that it is actually possible 
able to fully assimilate to a foreign country's culture and philosophy? And if so, would this be classified as cultural appropriation, which is, you know, in the public domain a lot these days? Or is this just simply sex successful cultural adaptation? I'm not sure that for some groups that it is possible to completely assimilate. Mm. Uh, as we've discussed, if you have some visible difference or, or cultural difference, that's not seen as part of the mainstream. In a multicultural society, there'd be many different components and elements that are different. But when there is a dominant cultural group, such as in the United States, where it's white Americans, if you're different from the mainstream, if you're different from the dominant group, it's it's difficult to entirely assimilate. Mm-hmm. Cultural appropriation involves the adoption and misuse of another culture's practices. So I'm not quite sure that appropriation, cultural appropriation applies to this case. I, I suppose if someone comes to another foreign country and misuses the country's customs, uh, perhaps it might be cultural appropriation. But but in terms of the, the main question about assimilation, as I've mentioned before, some groups are more assimilable than others just because of physical and cultural similarities to the dominant culture. If one is different from the dominant culture, it's difficult to become assimilated, particularly when there's a single dominant group. Mm. Gordon, you mentioned the the misuse of uh, said culture. Is this not partly open to interpretation? You know, if for instance, an Irish person spends 30 years in Italy and then they start maybe creating what they believe to be a hybrid of his or her two cultures. Uh, but then maybe some Italians, they think this is this is a misuse. Is the problem there because is the problem uh, or the bigger problem when we say cultural misappropriation is that it is open to interpretation and that there are no like strict lines or guidelines? That's correct. There aren't strict guidelines, but uh, it it would be uh, a little like like plagiarism. So it's it's Mm. having one's own work taken by someone else and claimed as their own and, and sometimes embellished or changed. But you're correct. Uh, Cultural appropriation is in the eye of the beholder. So in Eugene, Oregon, where I live, there's uh, relatively few Asian Americans, but there are Asian restaurants that cater to non-Asian customers Mm. in part to stay in business. And so the kind of Japanese food they make is not what you get in Japan. You could call it a hybrid. I'm not sure it really is a hybrid, but it is adapted for people in Eugene. In fact, there's a Japanese man who owns a ramen restaurant in Eugene. He studied in Japan, but he he makes the ramen in a way that people in Eugene like it rather than the authentic ramen that is in Japan. So I would consider that cultural appropriation, but people in Eugene like the food and he stays in business. So it is a matter of perspective. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that point, Gordon, because I think we agree. Jim and I often go back to back um, over Italian food and what I would class as cultural appropriation by putting cream in carbonaras. Um, but yeah, uh, I, I wanted to ask, you know, I've re- read the book, uh, how, how the World Thinks, and it really kind of opened up, expanded my view on how how actually um, philosophy and culture dictates how we think and act without us even knowing. Um, and then I, I wondered... Uh, if you think that people are aware of the impact that philosophy and culture plays in our day-to-day lives, especially when you think that um, one's 
uh, foreign one's current it may be one's culture may be foreign to their current environment for example someone like yourself who obviously has a Japanese background and thus must at least in part be influenced by Eastern philosophy whilst living in America the patron of Western ideals I mean do you believe that if we had a clearer understanding of differences and similarities of worldwide um, philosophies and cultures we would be better um, we'd better understand immigrants living in our own countries and maybe even be more compassionate towards them. I do, but many people don't understand that they have a culture, particularly if they haven't traveled outside their own mm. culture. So it's hmm. like the fish in uh, uh, water, that the water is there, but it isn't perceptible to people who live in it all the time. Most Americans are monolingual and monocultural, and there aren't many incentives to become multicultural, to travel, to learn about other cultures or languages. So I, yes, I think that becoming more aware of other cultures could make us more accepting, accepting and sympathetic toward immigrants, but there isn't currently much incentive to do that yeah um i mean it kind of links beautifully onto onto some of your studies um with with ethnic matching um and in in the first very first line actually of your paper the components of cultural match in psychotherapy um, it stated that pairing ethnic minority clients seeking mental health treatment with therapists that share the same ethnic background has been demonstrated to increase treatment utilization and lower rates of dropout uh, it strikes me that whilst this is seemingly glaringly obvious, there isn't actually too much discussion about this and something that I had never considered when th thinking about getting a therapist myself. Um, we often hear that people need to find the right therapist for them, but hardly ever hear the, that they need to find the right cultural match. Why do you believe that this seemingly simple point is, is being um, overlooked in the public domain? I think... There isn't much diversity in the psychology workforce, particularly in the United States. 88% of the psychology workforce in the United States is white. Mm -hmm. But uh, in terms of why therapist-client ethnic match might work, I use this analogy of being in a new city and choosing a Japanese restaurant. If I'm walking through an area of a city where there are restaurants and I see two Japanese restaurants, one that has Japanese cooks and the other that has non-Japanese cooks, I'm going to pick the one that has the Japanese cooks. Now that doesn't guarantee that the food is better, but the Japanese cooks are a signal that the food could be more authentic. That's not to say that non-Japanese cooks couldn't learn to cook authentic Japanese food, but that's just a proxy for uh, good food. Mm. Therapist-client ethnic matching tends to have some initial po positive effects in terms of keeping ethnic minority clients from dropping out of treatment after a single session. So this is a little bit like me choosing a Japanese restaurant with Japanese cooks. It, it may attract them to treatment, but the initial effects of ethnic matching seem to wear off over time. As a client spends more time in treatment, the effectiveness of the methods that the therapist uses becomes more influential than the therapist's ethnicity. Right, right. And, and, and I mean, you mentioned that the overwhelming um, percentage of, of professionals in the mental health sector that are white. And I mean, obviously, the um, the aim would be to have a more diversified workforce. However, with that be, I mean, obviously there are signs that that's happening, but maybe at a slower rate than we would want. Do you think it's on the onus, you know, for a therapist? I'm just the example. If you had uh, an, a European white American therapist um, and their patient happened to be Asian American, do you think the onus is on that therapist to actually do a bit of research into their cultural backgrounds um, to maybe understand, you know, understand their patient more basically and be able to give them a more tailored and personalized service and efficient service as well. Yes. Uh, it is important to understand your client's cultural background. We would hope that that happens during training, but that doesn't always happen because 
the people doing the training aren't diverse themselves. So it is important to understand a client's cultural background, but it's also important not to stereotype. So just because a person happens to be an Asian American doesn't mean that they have a strong ethnic identity or it doesn't mean that they are immigrants. They could be very acculturated. They could want the type of treatment that is the standard treatment because they took a psychology class and they learned about cognitive behavior therapy, for example. Mm-hmm. So the the therapist should have some cultural understanding, but know when to generalize and when to individualize. It's similar to science in what we call hypothesis testing. So you have a certain amount of information and you have some predictions or hunches and you want to determine if in this particular case with your client, if what you know about Asian Americans applies to this person fully or partially or perhaps not at all. Right, right. And and something else that really stood out when I was um, reading your research was that um, due to the way that obviously we all communicate very differently and those that communication can can be influenced by your culture um that a lot of ethnic minorities um can actually be misdiagnosed due to the monocultural nature nature of most professionals within the health sector i mean could it really be that there is a lack of misunderstanding there's lack of understanding sorry when it comes to diagnosing ethnic minorities with mental health problems um you know for example in your study uh, a meta-analysis of cultural adaptations or psychological interventions for anyone wanting to read it you found that people of chinese ancestry express depression via somatic symptoms which can often be overlooked in a european american dominated sector that's right so mental health problem expression may differ culturally and if a person has physical health problems that are a result of mental health problems most clinicians in the united states are not trained to detect those problems or see those problems as as the problem. Uh, they would say, well, you, sure, you have uh, problems sleeping or you don't have energy, but that's because of your emotions. Well, emotions in many East Asian cultures are, are not seen as informative, and uh, they tend to express their distress physically uh, because emotional expression could upset group harmony. So physical illness is something that draws sympathy. It's seen as something that one can't control, whereas emotional problems are seen as something that one can't control and uh, could could imbalance the group. So these physical expressions of distress sometimes are overlooked or misdiagnosed and and not directly addressed as the problem. And if a client of, of East Asian background comes to a therapist and wants to sleep better or wants to have more energy or wants to have a better appetite, and the therapist is focusing on their emotions, they may drop out of therapy because they believe that the therapy is irrelevant to their problems. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and how, do, I mean, you, what I f- find interesting is obviously you spoke about kind of the, the potential negatives, the positives and the negatives, sorry, for ethnic uh, matching. Um, but some of the positives were really kind of startling that I found, um, you know, for example, Latino or Latina clients were nearly five times more likely to discuss sexual identity issues when ethnically matched. Um, and, and Asian Americans, the most common um, issue discussed was academic concerns when, when ethnically matched kind of really, which, which really surprised me in both aspects. How, how can we kind of overcome this problem of, of monoculture dominated society catering to these my um, ethnic minorities seeking help? I think it 
involves cultural competence again, learning about different cultures in one's training, and not only in one's training, but in one's life experiences. Training only goes so far if, if one doesn't have life experiences that are authentic. A client can see through that. It's also a matter of trying to match clients with the types of treatments that they find most relevant. In, in some of my current work, we found that Asian Americans, many Asian Americans, prefer a more pragmatic problem-solving approach to problems rather than one that is focused on thoughts and emotions. The, the mm. problem-solving approach may address issues at school or work or within one's family. And this externally focused approach allows a client to save face because they aren't seen as having a personal mental illness, but they have, they have a problem that can be addressed and solved. But some more mainstream conventional therapists would see the focus on problems as superficial and that the real issue so to speak, is one's emotions and thoughts. But for many Asian Americans, they're looking for problem solutions. And if the therapist can't provide those, they may drop out of treatment. Gordon, do you think that we have generally an issue with untangling ourselves from our culture and that maybe this is the source of a lot of anxiety or difficulties? Tell me a little more about what you mean about by that. Uh, I guess I want to ask, do you think that people who have been brought up in a very uh, strong culture and being reminded that this culture, these are the things that we prioritize, uh, often that these priorities that the culture have uh, given are placed high um, are, take, are, are given as... Hmm. Okay, sorry, this is difficult. I wanted to ask, uh, do you think that we sh we too often uh, go to our default culture or surroundings rather than actually um, taking a step back and realizing that, yeah, maybe I am Latino or maybe I am Asian American, but this part of me is not and I need and are not stereotypically and I am different here and I still need to express this. Sure. I think we tend to default toward what is familiar to us, whatever our background is. I think in the United States, however, there is this dominant white, white American, European American culture that doesn't often allow much latitude for people from other cultural groups. So the expectation and pressure is to assimilate or to become more like the mainstream, even though for some people that's not possible, either because they don't want to or because they want to, but are not allowed to. Mm -hmm. So uh, I think the answer is yes. Thanks, Gordon. And, and, and Gordon, I wanted to ask, um, do you have, do you believe that it's possible to almost be a magpie and kind of take parts of either cultures and philosophies that you kind of admire or you aspire to kind of incorporate into your life you know i'm thinking for example about the relational self the idea of relational self which is very present in eastern asia um and it's just seen as the norm but over here in, in the western world it's not and we're kind of more uh we're more uh involved with the atomized self uh, and yet however to me whilst growing up in in the western world my whole life um I actually find the relational self much more um, intriguing and much more uh, a much more attractive um, philosophy that I would like to incorporate into myself and into the way that I see myself in relation to others rather as just focusing on me. Do you believe that people can actually kind of just take little bits of different cultures here and there and, 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 and mold it into one to then kind of have their own personal culture, so to speak, I guess? I, I think that can happen. It's interesting that you use the term magpie. That's not a word I've heard since uh, my father passed several years ago, but I think 
magpie was something he got from his English parents. And, and uh, <laughs> I, I must confess, I never understood what a magpie was or is. But sure, I think that actually is adaptive to be able to alternate between cultures, as Teresa Lomfrob Boys of Stanford calls it, where you integrate different parts of cultures into your own personality, where you take the strengths of different cultures and uh, capitalize on them. So I think being a cultural magpie, if you want to call it that, can be adaptive. And then, and then I guess my other question would be for people who kind of um, are familiar with your background and maybe have read your research or maybe for those who aren't, could you give us any clear examples of where cultural adaptation has been used um, successfully uh, in psychotherapy treatments? Sure. So Guillermo Bernal is a psychologist in Puerto Rico and he has culturally adapted treatments for depression for adolescents, and he's incorporated various aspects of Puerto Rican culture, language, metaphors, religion, family influences. And what he's found is that these cultural adaptations are as important as the approach itself. So he used two approaches with these adolescents. One is cognitive behavior therapy, which is the standard treatment that focuses on thoughts and emotions. And he also used interpersonal therapy, which does focus more on uh, relationships. But he found that in, in both instances, that both treatments were effective because they were both culturally adapted using his principles of adaptation that include language and metaphors and religion and cultural context. So that's an example where a cultural adaptation enhanced these existing treatments to be more effective for this context of Puerto Rican adolescents who are depressed. Interesting. Uh, and Gordon, have you postulated about what the future of this field could look like? The, the, on the greater appreciation and understanding of culture and mental health and how this could look in 10, 15, 20 years? I think it has a bright future, but progress has been slow. As I mentioned, 88% of the psychology workforce in the United States is white, and there are many people who are older psychologists who were trained many years ago in traditional models, uh, some of whom aren't that open to change. I am hopeful that uh, the pipeline is more diverse. 30% of current psychology graduate students are not white. So there is promise for change, but change is slow. This 88% white demographic of the psychology workforce is similar to the United States demographics as a whole in 1988. So in some ways, we're 40 years behind where the country is. So there is pressure to diversify and become more cult multicultural, but progress has been slow, but it's been steady. And how do you think that the United States could, could reach this? Uh, of course, you talk about the increasing uh, people studying, uh, the non-white uh, Americans that are studying in this area. But how do you think people outside, or how do you think, are there other ways that we can improve this? Sure, I think it needs to happen when, uh, early in, in development, when, when children are going to school, they need to learn about different cultures. They need to be with people from different cultural backgrounds. That will happen more because the United States is diversifying, but it does take a conscious and deliberate effort to change an educational curriculum to become more multicultural. But that's just good practice to prepare a person to 
live in a multicultural society and to live in the future. So I think this kind of experience and education needs to happen when a person is young. Thanks for that, Gordon. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> this has been a really uh, articulate, concise answering of our uh, ponderings. I guess we could close. Uh, we usually ask our guests how they keep on top of their mental health or are there any rituals or methods or routines that they have that really help them keep on top of their mental health? Sure. So I exercise daily. I walk and run and when I'm able to go to the gym, I lift weights. I do the weightlifting with two friends that provides a lot of social support. So that's part of my mental health. My family is very supportive and that promotes my mental health as well. I have three adult children and now one granddaughter and just my relationships with them are very rewarding. And uh, my wife is my partner. She's uh, an instructor in the College of Education at the University of Oregon. And we have great discussions about our work and about our life. She's also a Japanese American. So we share culture and history. So family relationships and exercise help me stay grounded. Perfect. Thank you so much, Gordon, for um, for sharing your expertise with us. It's been truly fascinating. Uh, really, really enjoyed this podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much. Guys, guys, if you've um, enjoyed this podcast, please like, rate and subscribe. And if you know of anyone who may be um, as part of an ethnic minority and is looking for help um, and may find this interesting or anyone else, for that matter, who may find this interesting, please pass the podcast on and spread awareness as much as possible. But until next time, guys, stay safe. Bye.